So Romans chapter 9. And as you find your way there, let me share with you an account that Charles Spurgeon knew of, which he shared with his congregation. Um, A girl who was not in good health approached her pastor one day with thoughts about her coming funeral. She spoke of her father, who was an unbeliever and who had never accepted an invitation from her to go to church. Pastor, you will bury me, won't you? She asked. Because my father will have to come to my funeral and he will hear you speak and you will speak the gospel. Please speak it clearly, sir. I have prayed for him a long time and I know that God will save him. And Spurgeon mentioned the example of this girl as an example of someone who was so concerned for the soul of her father that she was willing to face death if it might lead to his salvation. And according to Spurgeon, the man indeed did come to his daughter's funeral. And in his brokenness, he did hear the gospel. And by the grace of God, this man was saved. And the Lord answered the prayers of that dying girl. This morning, we looked into the mirror of God's word. And I think we were probably exposed. I know that I was exposed as someone who does not love the lost as I ought, as someone who does not grieve over the lostness around me as I ought. Evangelism begins in the heart. And until we have greater concern for the perishing around us, we will not be as bold in sharing the gospel as God calls us to be and and as the lost need us to be. But sometimes the lost aren't just our co-workers or our neighbors. Sometimes the lost are our very own family members. Sometimes the godly sorrow that Christians experience is a sorrow for their own kin. I know we've had many in our church, almost probably most of us, have family members that we've been praying for for a long time, grieving over for a long time, longing for God to save them. It rips our hearts to think about someone we love in hell. And probably like that little girl, there are people in our lives that we would say we would be willing to face almost anything if God would save our lost loved ones. Well, as we come again to Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, well, let's see the anguish and the sorrow that Paul felt for his own kin. So let's read this passage together again. Romans 9, beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Well, we know very, very little about Paul's immediate family. 
We know that Paul was from Tarsus, which is today in what we call Turkey, and that he was probably raised in that town. We know that his father was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. And the two chief religious parties of the day among the Jews were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Paul does tell us that his father was of the Pharisee party. So just as most people in America would say they either lean more Republican or Democrat, among the Jews you either leaned more Pharisee or Sadducee. And Paul said my father was, was definitely more in the Pharisee camp. We know that somehow Paul's family came into Roman citizenship And that was a big deal. It suggests that his father had some level of of prominence. One suggestion is that Paul's father was a tent maker, just as Paul was a tent maker, and that Paul learned his trade from his father, and that in a day of warring Roman generals who led thousands of troops in conquering quests, being a tent maker was a good business to be in because the generals needed tents for all those men. And so it's possible that it was through that trade that Paul's father gained Roman citizenship, which he then later passed on to to Paul. We know nothing about Paul's mother, nothing at all. We do know that there was at least one sister. Uh, In Acts 23, we find Paul's nephew, the son of his sister, in Jerusalem, warning Paul of an imminent attack on his life. The question of whether Paul had a wife continues to perplex people. Uh, Certainly by the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul includes himself in the category of singleness. And he talks about having received from God the gift of, of celibacy. Some think that Paul was a widower, that perhaps his wife had died. Others think that perhaps his wife had left him after his conversion and others think that he was single his entire life. And the truth is, we, we don't know. We, we just don't know. Certainly, whatever family Paul did have, their condition must have grieved him deeply. Paul had been a Pharisee's Pharisee, and Christ had rescued Paul from a life of legalism and works righteousness. The burden of trying to earn God's favor had been taken off of Paul's shoulders. That Paul now saw that Jesus was his righteousness before God. Jesus had done everything necessary so that Paul could rest in Jesus and be right with God. And having found that sweet rest in God after a life of legalistic Phariseeism, surely Paul thought about his own father, his own mother, and his own kin, and longed for them to have the kind of rest, the kind of joy that he had found in Christ. And so surely Paul grieved for his own family. But whatever the case concerning Paul's immediate family, we see in these verses that Paul was experiencing anguish and sorrow over his fellow Jews. The Jews were his people. And together they were descendants of Abraham. And most of the time when Paul speaks in the New Testament of his brothers or sisters, he is speaking of brothers and sisters in Christ. But in this passage, he speaks of his brothers and sisters in the flesh. He's thinking here about the entire Jewish race. And he's mourning that his people, his kin, his nation... They are rejecting the Messiah. 
Maybe the closest thing we have to this is when we grieve over the lostness of our nation. Do you ever think about this country and the great foundation on which it was laid and feel brokenhearted because we seem to be running hard and fast away from that foundation? You ever think about the pilgrims and the hope that they had of a land where Christians could live in peace, where they could be excuse me, (coughs) a land where they could be free to pursue godly living? And then we look around and we see that kind of freedom dissipating as it calls us to mourn. Do you ever look around at your fellow Americans and feel almost sick because you see them wasting their lives away when they could have deeper joy of knowing Christ and walking with Christ? I think that's similar to what Paul is experiencing here as he thinks about his fellow Jews. But it's a little different because the Jews were God's chosen people. The the difference is that Jesus was himself a Jew. That Jesus came as a Jew. He was a Jewish Messiah. The Jews had 4,000 years of history calling them to embrace the Messiah when he came, and yet Paul was watching them one by one, city after city, reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul felt on his own body the pain of their rejection. Because usually as they rejected the gospel, they expressed it with whips and with stones and with driving him out of town or putting him in prison. Now, we could say that we've spent all of our time this Lord's Day looking at the source of Paul's sorrow. The source of Paul's sorrow, namely that his fellow Jews are accursed and cut off from Christ. But we also need to note the sincerity of Paul's sorrow. The sincerity of Paul's sorrow. Did you notice how far Paul goes in verse 1 to stress that he is telling the truth? In fact, in the Greek, the very first word of the very first verse of Romans 9 is the word truth. Paul is emphasizing in verse 1 how sincere he is. So look at verse 1 again. Look at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So so he isn't just speaking the truth. He says he's speaking the truth in Christ, which is a pretty heavy thing to say. If he had said, I am speaking the truth as a Christian, that would have been enough because Christians shouldn't tell lies. Christians are to be a people of the truth. If he had said, I am speaking the truth in the presence of Christ, or I am speaking the truth before my Christ, that would have been even weightier. When we realize that every word we say or every word we write, we say or write in the presence of Christ, that constrains us to be truthful, don't it? We would be a much holier people if we remembered that we live every moment in the presence of Christ. But Paul says something even stronger than that. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. As someone united to Christ, as as a part of Christ's body, as a part of Christ himself, I am in Christ and I speak this. Remember how in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, Paul says that for a Christian to be with a prostitute is to actually join Christ to that prostitute and to bring Christ into that moment of immorality. 
In other words, everything we do as a Christian, we do as a part of Christ's very body. We do as one with Christ. You are one with Christ. What you do, you bring Jesus into. So Paul says, I am in Christ, and I'm telling you, I'm telling the truth. I'm not going to lie. I'm in Christ. I'm speaking the truth. He's using the strongest language that he can use to say, I am telling the truth. I am not uniting Christ with dishonesty. I am certain of what I'm saying. And you would think, okay, that's a strong statement, Paul. We get it. It settles that you're telling the truth. But that wasn't enough for Paul. He then goes on to call another witness to his truthfulness, his own conscience. You and I know that our consciences in some ways are independent of ourselves. Right? Our, our consciences can convict us. Our consciences can, can judge us and cause us to feel shame. The Holy Spirit can, can use our consciences to help us see when we are in sin. So Paul says to the Christians in Rome that his own conscience in the Holy Spirit is bearing witness that he's telling the truth. In our day, we would say, I have a clean conscience, or I have a clear conscience about what I'm doing and about what I'm saying. So Paul is just, in, in verse 1, he is insisting that he is sincere, that he's telling the truth. Why does he feel the need to emphasize this so much? It's almost as if Paul assumes that the Christians in Rome are going to be suspicious when he says he's grieving over his fellow Jews. It's almost as if he thinks they're going to discount his words as mere words and not believe him. Why would that be the case? Why would these Roman Christians not believe Paul when he says, I'm grieving over my lost kin? Let me give you three reasons. Three reasons why Paul needed to stress his sincerity. Okay? Number one, we need to remember that Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's life has been given to taking the gospel to foreign lands and to foreign peoples. And it could be that some were accusing Paul of having forsaken his own people in order to get the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, remember what Jesus said? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Shouldn't you have started in Jerusalem, Paul? Shouldn't you be in Judea? Shouldn't you be? The uttermost parts of the earth can come later, Paul. You're a Jew. Shouldn't you be witnessing to the Jews? What are you doing as the apostle to the Gentiles? When you say you mourn over lost Jews, I'm not sure I believe you. That's one possible objection that could have been made. The second objection that could be brought against Paul is that most of the severest things he says in the book of Romans, he says to the Jews. Some of the most severe things he says in the book of Romans, he says to the Jews. It's fair to say that in the book of Romans, Paul reserves his strongest rebukes for his own kin, for the Jews in the church of Rome. If you don't believe me, you could go back and read Romans 2 in which Paul is all about helping his fellow Jews in the church of Rome see that they are just as wicked and just as much in need of salvation as their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, he's saying to his fellow Jews, don't think that somehow um, you are 10 feet down a hole and Christ saved you, and your Gentile brothers and sisters were 100 feet down the hole and Christ saved them, and you didn't have as far to come. You weren't as bad as they were. 
when you were saved. And Paul says in Romans 2, no, no, no. All of us are sinful. All of us are wicked. And he says very strong words to his fellow Jews in Romans 2. He speaks to them bluntly about their hypocrisy and judging others and looking down on others while they do the same things themselves. He took on circumcision in Romans 2 and said, ultimately what matters is the circumcision of the heart. It is very possible for the the Jewish Christians in Rome, it really might have sounded as if Paul didn't like his own people very much. When they they heard Romans 2 being read in their church service, they might have been thinking, hmm, why is Paul not like his people very much? And then the third reason that Paul uh, needed to stress his sincerity is due to the situation at the church in Rome. The situation at the church in Rome. Um, Let me just remind you of this. This was a church that had started out with a Jewish majority. So Jews from Rome had come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And they heard Peter preach that amazing message. And some of the thousands that were saved that day were Jewish people from Rome. And they were converted to Christianity by Peter's message. And eventually, after probably staying in Jerusalem for a while, being discipled by the apostles for a while, eventually these Jewish people, saved on the day of Pentecost, went back home to Rome. And they started the church in Rome. However, a wave of persecution came against these Jewish Christians. And they had to get out of the city of Rome, and they had to get out fast. And so they scattered. And while these first Jewish Christians in Rome scattered out of Rome, the church in Rome began to grow with Gentiles. And so suddenly the church in Rome was a Gentile church, and when this particular wave of persecution was over, these Jewish Christians came back to their church and found that they were now the minority. We used to run this church, they were thinking, (laughs) and we don't run it anymore. Because there's a lot more Gentiles than there are Jews. And so there's friction in the church of Rome between Jews and Gentiles. Um, The Jewish Christians were still much more strongly attached to their Jewishness. And that's going to cause issues. And many of what we're going to see later in Romans is about this. Uh, We're going to read in in chapter 14 about issues surrounding food and drink. uh, Issues about holy days and whether holy days should be observed. There were issues between these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians that were causing disunity in the church. So in light of all this, it was very possible that the Jewish Christians hearing this letter were thinking, Paul's on the side of the Gentiles in our church. Can you imagine if our church was in the middle of a, of a, of a big fight, right? Where some of us were on one side and some of us were on the other, and then uh, a great Christian leader comes and everybody starts thinking, I wonder which side he's on. I wonder which side he's going to be for. Well, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Which side do you think he's for? Right? That's how they're thinking. And then they hear Romans 2, and they think, well, we know what side he's on. He's supporting the Gentile part of our church and not the Jewish part of the church. And so this is why Paul has to go out of his way to say, in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, when I tell you, that I am grieving for the lostness of my fellow Jews. I am absolutely sincere. I am saying this in Christ, and I have a clean conscience. I'm not lying as I tell you this. Now, source of Paul's sorrow, sincerity of Paul's sorrow, I don't have another S for you. Let's look at the degree of Paul's sorrow. 
the degree of sorrow. If you can come up with a S that works for that, you can put it in your, your paper, your notes. How great is Paul's concern for his lost kinsmen, really? Well, it's great enough that Paul makes this astounding statement in verse 3. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Verse 3 gets commentators and everyday Christians all worked up. And it's done it for for years. Um, When people read verse 3, people sometimes think things like, Paul, don't you know that what you're saying is impossible? Don't you know that only Christ, (coughs) excuse me, that only Christ can bear the curse for someone else? Paul, you can't take your your kinsman's place. Uh, People get lost in theological questions about verse 3. Well, if Paul really could be placed under God's curse, in the stead of his fellow Jews, then wouldn't his heart suddenly go back to being depraved again? And then wouldn't the joy that he's talking about having and seeing his brothers saved, wouldn't there be no joy because he would be depraved again? And therefore, it wouldn't make sense. It would be a conundrum. Uh, people run in circles, and commentators get, just, they just start running in circles with this statement of Paul in verse 3. And it's totally not helpful at all. The ESV is absolutely right when it translates verse 3 saying, For I could wish. Does everybody see that if you have the ESV? For I could wish. In other words, Paul says, I know that what I'm saying is impossible. I know that I can't take somebody else's place and trade my salvation so that they can be saved. But he says, I'm using hyperbole to show you how greatly I love my fellow Jews and how much I wish that they would be saved. Paul is imitating the heart of Christ and wishing that he might take the place of others so that they would be saved. It's like a parent who sees their suffering child and says, oh, how I wish that I could trade places and I would take the, the, the hurt and the pain in the place of my child. It's not that the parent wants to suffer, but the parent would do almost anything to see their child made better. I hope it's not unusual for us as Christians to have such love for others in our lives that we really feel like we would do almost anything if God would save them. Reminds me of Exodus 32. Exodus 32, right after Israel has sinned by worshiping the golden calf. You remember that? Israel has just been worshiping this golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain. He sees the people worshiping the golden calf. He breaks the tablets And then he goes back up the mountain and he pleads with God to forgive the people. And listen to how Moses expresses his love for the people of Israel. He says to God, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. In other words, Moses says to God, God, if if you will forgive these people's sin, But if you're not going to forgive their sin, let their sin fall on me. Blot me out of your book and forgive them. Moses says, I am willing to take the place of punishment for the people of Israel who were just doing this terrible thing, worshiping this golden calf. This is what loving leadership looks like. Oh God, do what you will to me, but spare those that I love. 
In the real world, of course, there has only been one who could truly substitute himself for the place of others. You and I cannot be a savior for someone else before God. We cannot take the curse for others because we have our own sins to deal with. But because Jesus Christ was the sinless, perfect man, he was able to go to the cross as the second Adam. And representing every person who would ever believe on him, he was able to do in actuality what Paul and Moses wished they could do. Jesus was able to bear the curse and be cut off from his father for our sakes, taking our judgment upon himself. And thus there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and it is the name Jesus Christ. This is the name that Paul preached This is the name which his fellow Jews were rejecting. As we'll see later in Romans 9, they were stumbling over the cornerstone. Well, now very quickly, let's notice verses 4 and 5. If you want a heading here, this heading would be the privileges of the Jews. The privileges of the Jews. This is why the rejection of Jesus by the Jews was so much worse than even other people rejecting Jesus. These Jews had so many privileges, which other people did not have. No nation in the world had been given the privileges that God had given to Israel. And so when they rejected Jesus Christ, their rejection resulted in an aggravated condemnation. In other words, the guilt of Israel is a greater guilt because of all of the kindness that God had shown to them. God had loved Israel like he had loved no other nation. And when his beloved son came to them, they would not have him. Therefore, their guilt is a greater guilt before God. What privileges does Paul mention? We're just going to tick them off one at a time. So, um, kids, if you want, you can put your finger on each word as I walk through it. But we're going to start in verse 4. We're going to walk through these privileges that the Israelites had that made their rejection of Jesus so much worse. First, first he mentions the adoption. Of all the nations of the world, God gave himself as a father only to the people of Israel. They were not better than other nations. They were not more deserving. In fact, God chose to make Israel his child even when Israel didn't yet exist. But for his purposes, as an act of mercy, God adopted this nation as his son. God adopted Israel and he gave them his special protection. He rescued them out of Egypt. Do you think Israel was was the only people in the Old Testament being held as slaves? There were lots of peoples in the Old Testament days being held as slaves. But only one people that God chose to come in and rescue by mighty acts of power. God led his people like a father leads his children with a pillar of fire and a cloud of dust by his word and through the offices of prophet, priests, and kings. The father not only protected Israel, but he led Israel. He provided for Israel. Even when it meant raining bread out of the sky, he, he provided for them. We saw in Exodus that God called Israel his son and said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if you don't let Israel go, it will be the death of your son because that's how much my son Israel means to me. No other geopolitical nation has ever had such a relationship with the creator as ancient Israel had. They had been adopted by God. 
Second, Paul mentions the glory. I think this refers to the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory, it's sometimes called, which dwelt first on Mount Sinai, and then it moved and it dwelt in the tabernacle, and then it dwelt in the temple. God is everywhere, but his special glorious presence in Old Testament days could only be found in one location. Only in one nation could you find the special presence of God. And it was in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. Folks, the glory of God is the most wonderful, valuable, fearsome, mighty thing of all. And God set his glory among the Israelites. They had the honor of higher than any other nation. What do we claim is, is our you know, uh, reasons to be proud here in North Carolina? We, we claim our, our, our coast. We claim our mountains, right? We claim, what do we claim? Our barbecue, right? We, we have things we claim that are our highest things and you know, things that make us special as a state. Um, Israel had the highest thing to claim of any people that ever lived. The very special presence of God is with us not with any other nation. So adoption, the glory, he mentions the covenants. And Paul is speaking here of the Abrahamic covenant issued first to Abraham and then repeated to Isaac and repeated to Jacob, where God promised these men that from them would come a great multitude, a kingdom, that their descendants would dwell in a blessed land, that they would be God's people, and that God would be their God, and that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He's speaking here of the Mosaic Covenant, in which God gave his law to Israel, promised to bless them if they would uphold his commandments. It was only to Israel that God gave the Davidic covenant in which God promised a king who would reign forever, a throne that would be established forever over a kingdom that would exist forever and that it would be a son of David who would be king. These awesome covenants, these awesome promises from God given only to one people in the history of the world, the ancient nation of Israel. And then Paul mentions the giving of the law. This was a climactic moment in world history. At Mount Sinai, God wrote with his own divine finger on tablets of stone. At Mount Sinai, God spoke with such a thunderous voice that the people cried out, don't speak to us anymore. Moses, you go talk to him. Don't let him speak again because it caused them to tremble so. These tablets of stone After the first ones were broken, God did it again with his own divine finger. He wrote on tablets of stone, and these were kept in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the special presence of God, in the temple. The special presence of God was connected to those tablets of stone. And God's blessing upon Israel was connected to them keeping the law that was written on those tablets of stone. The rest of humanity had something of God's law written in their consciences, written in their hearts, but Israel had the revealed law of God written for them in a way that even a child could understand it. And if that wasn't enough, God gave them many more commandments in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy to help them make sense of how do we live out these ten commandments that you've given us. No other nation 
was given more tools to help them be righteous than the nation of Israel. And then Paul mentions the worship, the worship of Israel. All the other nations had gods that they worshipped. All the other nations had their own worship practices, but only Israel had God speak to them himself and say, here is what real worship looks like. Here is the way I want to be worshipped. Only Israel knew the true God and how the true God desired to be worshipped. They had the true sacrifices. They had the true priesthood. This belonged to Israel alone. Paul mentions the promises. How many promises did God make to Israel? Even beyond the covenants that we talked about. God said to Israel, if you will only humble yourself and cry out to me, I will hear you. God promised to Israel again and again, if you will turn from your wicked ways, I will bless you and make you fruitful. He didn't say that to the Assyrians. He didn't say that to the Babylonians. God never came to the Persians and said, Persians, if you'll turn from your wicked ways and trust me, I will save you and make you my own and bless you. He never said that to them. He said it to Israel. The rest of the world was living in darkness and God was giving his precious promises to this nation. He talks about the patriarchs. Every nation has its founding fathers, right? In our nation, we like to talk about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. But for Israel, they had the founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And these were all men of faith. I mean, that's just it. We, we say, if you want to know what America's really about, go back to our founding fathers. Well, if you want to know what Israel is really supposed to be about, go back to the founding fathers. These were men of faith who trusted in God, persevered in faith, and were ultimately blessed by God. If there was any nation in the world that should trust the true and living God, it should be Israel, the nation that came from these men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Joseph are all given in Hebrews 11 as examples for us of what a life of faith looks like. And then there was the greatest privilege of all. The greatest privilege of all. You see, ultimately, every one of these other privileges was meant to point Israel to their coming Messiah. Israel was adopted as God's son, but always with the intent that Israel would know God's true son. The glory of God was given to Israel, but it was the glory of God's son, the glory of Christ. The covenants have their fulfillment in Christ. The law was given to reveal to the people their need for a Messiah, a Messiah who would come and fulfill every one of those commandments written on the tablets of stone. The worship of God, the priesthood, the sacrifices, they all pointed to the Messiah, the promises of forgiveness and God hearing his people and showing mercy, all possible only because of Messiah. The patriarchs were looking forward to the day of Christ. Jesus himself says in John 8, 56, to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, this whole list of privileges that we just went through, everyone was meant to point the Jewish people to the coming Savior of the world. Here 
is how the nation of Israel was going to be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. From them would come the Savior of the world. From them would come the Messiah of the world, the great kingdom builder who would build not just a Jewish kingdom, not a Jews-only kingdom, but a, a universal kingdom of people who are humble and believe. And so the Messiah came, and he was a Jewish man. He came from the tribe of Judah. He was born in David's town, Bethlehem. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. What a tragedy. Those who had received the most grace from God and the greatest opportunity to be saved rejected their Savior. This is why Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his hearts for them. And I simply want to say, Mount Hermon, as terrible a tragedy as the rejection of Jesus by the Jews was, how much worse would it be for someone in here to continue to refuse faith in Jesus Christ? Because make sure you get this. As great as the privileges of the Jews were, your privileges are even greater. Your privileges are higher. The Jews had the gospel in types and shadows. You have the gospel in clear black and white in the pages of your Bible. You have the gospel in crystal clarity in a way that the Old Testament saints never had it. You have the gospel being proclaimed from this pulpit week after week, taught in our Sunday school classes week after week. The Jews, they knew that a Messiah was coming. You know his name. You know what he did at the cross. You know how he has radically changed this world. You know how millions of people have been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. You're, you're sitting here tonight listening yet again to a preacher call you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you would be saved. You have privileges way above what the Jews ever had. You have Romans 8. Israelites lived under the old covenant. You're being offered the new. Which simply says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't have to go to a building in Jerusalem to have the special presence of God. He is in this room. The special presence of God is with us as we are his worshiping people. And if you will believe on Christ, his special presence will come and dwell in your heart. I would simply say to every one of us, could it be that you would sit here Sunday after Sunday, week after week, hearing the good news of Jesus and somehow still not be saved and not believe? Is it possible that there could be anyone in this room with a hard heart still? Could it be that Jesus, who is the very definition of goodness himself, would remain untreasured by you, unloved by you, untrusted by you. On the day of judgment, do you not see how you will grieve that God was so good to you and that he gave you so many privileges and so many opportunities to believe? And like the Jews of old, you continue to reject them. Don't choose hell 
over heaven. Don't choose the wrath of God over his fatherly love. Don't choose to reject Jesus Christ when you could follow him and have his salvation. Paul grieved over the lostness of the Jews. Shouldn't we in this room grieve over those who sit in God's house week after week and remain unchanged and unbelieving? I pray that it's not you. I pray that there are none like that in this room. All I can do is preach the gospel again and call you again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.